Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 2 of the Quadcasts. I am your host, John McAlevey, and I thank you for giving us a listen. While this podcast is mainly for and about folks like me who have had their lives affected by a spinal cord injury, it is really for anyone who just wants to be inspired. Think of it as your weekly 30 to 45 minute session of OT and PT for the soul. For those of you that listened to my last episode starring Anthony Jang, what did you think? Having founded and sold at least two businesses by the age of 25 is super. Throw in the fact that he became a C5 quad in the middle of all of it is nothing short of amazing. To hear the podcast in its entirety, simply log on to my website, which is www.quadcast.org. There you will find each and every one of my 39 installments. 39? Wow, I never thought I would get to three. Now let's turn our attention to today's show and guest. When you look up the word positivity in the dictionary, there is a picture of my guest, along with the actual definition, which is, quote, the practice of being or tendency to be positive or optimistic in attitude, end quote. I kid you not, I have never been around her when she is having a bad day. Despite suffering a devastating SCI on Black Friday 2001, Janine Valenti has not let it define her. Not only does she drive her own van from a wheelchair, she shops in supermarkets alone, cooks for not only family but friends and neighbors, travels extensively, and most importantly, is an integral part of Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation's Think First program, Lunch and Learn discussion series, and peer mentorship. As you can see, Janine wears many hats, the latest of which is author, as her first book, Rise to the Occasion is in its final approach towards being published. I am purposely keeping my introduction this week short in order to highlight all of Janine's remarkable story. So after this brief public service announcement from the good folks at moresportsnow.com, we will get this show on the road. And that, my friends, is next. Hi, everyone. I'm Matt Laughlin, the radio play-by-play announcer for the New Jersey Devils. If you like what you're hearing from John McAlevey on today's show, then you'll want to check out more Sports Now's podcast. You know, John's a huge sports fan, and each week he joins me and Steve Titchener for a spirited roundtable discussion on what's going on in sports on both sides of the Hudson. Our podcast can be heard at moresportsnow.com, but also on iTunes, Spotify, and iHeart. I hope you'll check us out. And we are back. Remember, you can find the podcast on the following hosts. Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, Overcast, Podchaser, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. It is now my pleasure to introduce my fellow SCI survivor and thriver, my colleague and office mate at Kessler Institute, and most importantly, my good friend Janine Valenti to the Quadcast. Janine, welcome, and thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you, John, for having me. Oh, I know I've been kicking this around in my head. I've gotten so many folks to come on and I talk about the show in the office and I thought, my goodness, who's a better person to have on than my buddy Janine? And so finally, uh, we were able to do it and today is the day. So I really appreciate you joining me. 
Thank you. Awesome. What I like to do with all of my shows is begin at the beginning, because as we know, these spinal cord injuries that we've had do not define who we are and who we were. So why don't we start there? Can you tell us where you grew up and what were some things you liked doing as a young person? Sure. Well, I was born in 1964, and I was born in the Flatbush section of Brooklyn, New York. Um, but by the age of seven, or I would say by 1972, we were forced to move because the neighborhood, that Flatbush section just got so dangerous. So we moved to the suburbs of uh, Island, New Jersey, which was in Woodbridge Township School District. Um, so, but I have fond, very fond memories of my childhood, both in Brooklyn and in Island. Yeah. And what were some things that, uh, that you were doing as a young lady? I know, um, speaking with you now, I know that cooking is something that's a big thing, um, on your plate, pun intended. Yes. Yes. Well, I always looked in the future and say, and I used to say, I can't wait till I can cook. Cause that to me was, was indicative of you're a big girl. You're a really big girl now that you can cook. And, um, uh, we, I had three brothers and a twin sister. My twin sister was born developmentally disabled. But my brothers, my youngest brother, my youngest older brother would have been nine years older than I. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, I never met him, John, because he died of leukemia at the age of three and a half. Oh, I'm sorry. That broke broke my parents. Mm. I don't, they never got over that. But mm. then my other two brothers were 12 and 14 when I was born. Wow. So what was happening is they practically were out of the house by the time I was born, but they kept, they would come back with their girlfriends on Sunday and then their wives on Sunday. And we always had a big family dinner. Mm. And my mother was the one. She used to make these big, beautiful meals. And we, I look forward to Sunday every single week for seeing my, my brothers come back. Yeah. Family dinners, right? Those were always the best. Yep. Family dinners. Yep. Yep. After church on Sunday. Yes. Oh, that's great. Boy, to have brothers so much older than you, were they, well, I guess since they weren't in the house, how protective of the, of you were they, you know, when you started dating and all, were they around to sort of put the kibosh on all of that stuff? I've heard stories where no, they were gone, no, they right? Were, they were gone, but when they were younger in their childhood, um, well, in their teenhood, they would take me to the park because I was a girl magnet. Oh, yes. That's <laughs> so, so funny. They, so they would take me to the park and, they used to get all these girls to come to the carriage and the girls would say, are these your children? And they would quickly say, oh, no, I'm single. They, these are my, this is my uh, sister that's, or my, these are my twin sisters. Yeah. That's adorable. I'm finding that out now having my dog, Yokin. He's a real chick magnet. So um, <laughs> it's so funny. In fact, wherever I go now, uh, the first thing I hear, I hear is, hey, look, there's Yokin. There's Yokin. Nobody cares about me anymore. They just want to hang with him. Right. Oh, so, <laughs> so funny. funny. Yeah. So Janine, how about as a younger person, were there any mentors in your life or influential people that, you know, you look back on now and think of fondly? Yes, actually. My grandmother lived with us. She was already, 
my, my grandfather had died when I was in utero. So my grandmother came to live with my mom to help out after we were born. And um, so uh, she died when I was 10. So I had 10 years with her, but it wasn't until a f- in my adulthood that I realized in those 10 years, they went by fast, but I learned so much from my grandmother. Mm. And I hold her in my heart with such, such warm heartfelt memories and she taught me so much about life that I'm I to this day there's never a day that goes by that I don't think about her yeah she was that much of an influence that's amazing so much of an influence yeah Yeah. Janine tell us about uh before we get into the to the day that changed your life Tell us about the life that you had sort of carved out for yourself. I know you were married, you had a family, and uh, tell us what you were doing and and what took up your days, your time. Oh, my goodness. Actually, it's probably easier for me to say what I wasn't doing because <laughs> I was doing so many things. But um, so, so my injury happened at 37, and I started having children at 29. But so... Before my injury, I had all of the bases covered. So I was a wife, a mom, a high school teacher, a Sunday school teacher, a daughter to my father who lived with us, a mother to my twin sister with many special needs. And I I mentioned that I taught Sunday school, but I also was very active in my church and other things. I, I helped run the summer Sundays. S-O-N-D-A-Y-S, Summer Sundays. That was a Bible camp for children, Mm -hmm. ages preschool to sixth grade. And that was just two weeks over the summer, but it was an intense, tense of two weeks and a lot of planning beforehand. And my children and I would go to the um, local food bank, even as young as they were. I would take them one at a time because they wouldn't fight them. (laughs) And we went to the local food bank and we served meals and helped prepare the foods and serve meals at the local soup kitchen because that was very valuable to me as a mother. Mm. Because growing up, you always hear that you have to eat what's on your plate because there are people starving in China. Well, let me tell you, there were people starving in our own city. Yeah. So that was an important lesson. So my, so we used to do that. Um And I also had to, in order for me to maintain the energy I needed to work full time, and then when the kids went to sleep, I had to start grading papers, doing lesson plans. My husband worked 70 to 80 hours a week. So it was mostly on me. I still had to clean the house, go grocery shopping. I cooked every night. Um, I took care of my sister, took care of the kids. And um, and every single second of my time was owned, but I was able to keep up the energy because I worked out. Oh, because that was I had to work out. Yes, because that was the only way I had the energy to not to never stop. Yeah, my and goodness, you were on the fly twenty four seven. I really was, and you know what my before injury secret was? Oh my goodness, you're gonna laugh. Yeah. I always said, listen. Just don't sit down because if you don't sit down, you don't know how tired you are. <laughs> well, now that I have to come up with a plan B, right? Yes. 
Because yeah. now I'm sitting all the time. I was going to say, oh boy, and now you, now all you do is sit. Well, Janine, tell us about, you mentioned you were a high school teacher. Tell us what subject it was and how um, how fulfilling was that for you to, to work with oh America's gosh. youth, as they like to say. Right. Well, first of all, the advantage I had was, I had, if you have to look at uh, the bright side, I got injured just before cell phones were coming out. So I never had to compete for the students' attention, like the, the phones and everything. Oh, how yeah. Kids today are addicted to their phones. And sure. also, um, cell phones were a big way to cheat on tests and stuff. So I'm so glad I never had to deal with that. Mm. But anyway, um, so I taught high school Spanish. And the what I was the most, two things that I was the most proud of is because I was so young and had so much energy, before my kids came, I was, I was, um, teaching for eight years before the kids came. Yeah. And so during those eight years, I took my students to Spain four years. I've been Spain five times, but four of the five times were as with my students over spring break. Is that right? So, and then the other thing that I'm proud of is that I was really, really good at teaching the grammar because I had to learn it mm-hmm. the hard way from a, and from an English speaking point of view. So I was really, really good at emphasizing speaking in the classroom. Yeah. And my kids knew how to speak Spanish so well at every level. And you then had, we went to yeah, you Spain had so to prepared. Yeah, it was just great. I had such a good rapport with them because because a lot of times I'll meet a teacher who's a who's an elementary school teacher and they'll say, oh, you taught high school? God bless you. But yeah. my kids were great. They never gave me a problem. Yeah. My mom taught at Cranford High School for a number of years and she tells me the same thing. And um, yeah, but, you know, nowadays, I, I wonder how you would have done uh, teaching remotely with COVID and, you know, a lot of these kids oh, now, my goodness. it's really stunted their, their learning. I mean, you see these reports out now that we're, our kids are grading out at a much lower level in many subjects and they're tuned out and, you know, I their, know. their minds, so hard. it's really, really hard for them. And so I, I feel sorry for not only the kids who are suffering, but the teachers as well, you know, having to learn to oh, teach so hard. a completely different way. And so, and well, I've heard, for, I have a lot of teachers in my family and they all say it's so much easier to teach in person yeah. than it was virtually. Yeah. I'm and, glad without, I and without masks on as well, right? Right. Oh, good grief. Well, Janine, take us back now. I, I hate to do this to you, but take us back to Black Friday, November 23, 2001. What do you remember about the day leading up to the accident? What do you remember in the immediate aftermath? And then after um, oh after goodness. the car is flipped over, what do you remember about, you know, getting to the hospital and all of that stuff? Oh, my goodness. Well, this is, I remember absolutely everything. But I remember that my kids were all in pre-K and kindergarten and first grade. So I, the whole, I was hosting Thanksgiving that year. But the Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday before the Thursday holiday, I was having Thanksgiving in my children's classes. So I would, after I got out of school, I went to their school with with a, a side dish or like an ethnic food. Sure. That represented their family, our family. 
And I went to almost up to leading to Thursday. I was cooking for school, for my children's classes. And then I had 10 people at our house and I had to do all the cooking for that. Oh boy. But, but I loved it. I loved being busy and going the extra mile. But so I, on that Thursday, um, it, 9-11 had just happened. And I remember feeling so grateful that my family was okay. Nobody I knew had perished. Um, and so that day I was in mourning for America, but I was so grateful that my close-knit circle was unscathed. Yes. And um, I invited the whole family. And after dinner, we went for a walk around the block, around our neighborhood. Little did I know that was going to be my last walk. Mm. Um, but then that next day was Black Friday and I wasn't going shopping, but we had a slow morning because we were so tired from the day before. And um, I worked out and I had a wake to go to. And the wake was the mom of one of my colleagues had passed mm. due to cancer. Mm -hmm. And our whole, our whole World Language Department was meeting up at the funeral parlor together at 2.30. So I set out to be on time uh, at the wake, which I was only 20 minutes away. So at 2.09, I got in my car, but everybody was crying. Nobody wanted me to go. My kids were trying to convince me not to go. Mm. And I said, I'll be right back. I'll be back in an hour. Yeah. Don't worry. And I gave everybody a kiss goodbye and I got in my car and I made a right on red at 209. And by the time 211 came, I was upside down already uh. on. What happened was I noticed right away that a car was approaching me from the other side of the highway. And at this moment, at that moment in time, the highway did not have a median. So the car was just coming straight for me and I tried to get out of his way by speeding up so that he would I'd get out of harm's way and he would hit the curve. But it was a car in front of me mm. that did not know what was going on. And that car did not give me any wiggle room whatsoever. So I was trapped. Oh gosh. So, but the car looked really harmless because it was going so slowly. And I really thought the guy had died behind the wheel. Because mm. who else is going to come right at you like that? Exactly. But, sure. just, but I later found out that he fell asleep. Mm. And the second he T-boned me, my SUV started flipping. And I was so scared because I never, ever wanted to flip. I never went into those those high-powered roller coasters that would turn you upside down. Yeah, I hate those. I always was afraid of that, and Me I didn't too. want to flip now. So I just put my head down on the steering wheel and braced myself. I had my seatbelt on, but the second I flipped, I couldn't move my leg. Mm. So I remember screaming, help me. But I felt like I was screaming, but the tiniest, tiniest voice came out of me. I got my... my air was taken from me yeah your there was a top. vital lung capacity was already affected exactly and i knew that my legs you know i just kept screaming my legs i can't move my legs i can't move my legs 
And there was a cop that was right behind me. So he put his lights on and came to help me. And I remember that he opened up my my driver's side door. And the second he did that, excruciating pain went from my neck to my big toe and then disappeared. Mm. And then he worked on getting me out. Yeah. Um, and he got me out, put me on a straight board and called the ambulance. Yeah. And um, yeah. So anyway, so, so that where did I they, remember. Where did they take you? Did you go to um, what hospital they, did you go to? And what did the doctors initially tell you? Well, I, I, um, I live in New Brunswick. So I went to the number one trauma center. So if, if the president uh, were hurt, this is the hospital he would have gone to, or the governor. Okay. If the governor were hurt, he, this is the hospital that he would go to. Um, it was It's Robert Wood Johnson in New Brunswick. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm. And what did the doctors tell you initially? Well, first of all, when I got there, this team of doctors were waiting for me. So I remember thinking, it usually takes so long in an emergency room, but these people, they were all over me, like, like white on rice. They were taking my vitals and asking me questions. And I remember them cutting my, my clothes off. Um, and they told me that, well, they didn't tell me much of anything. So I had to go to CT and I had to go to MRI and my husband was nowhere to be found. I didn't know. I found out that he had to take, he had to get the kids taken care of. Mm. But then he also came over to the hospital and he knew a lot of the doctors there. So he was trying to get a scouting report on the surgeon that would be uh, operating on me. Right. But so he, but he sent up a friend of ours who was a priest to keep me company. But, I just remember being so calm and I must've been in shock. Sure. But the, but Tom told the doctor not to give him a report on my condition until he could be there. Right. So I remember the doctor just telling me, you broke your neck. So I said to him, what are you saying that I'm going to be combined to a wheelchair for the rest of my life? Mm. And he barely Barely nodded yes. And then I lost it. Yeah. And then you realize, but you're always in denial. Sure. So you don't believe it. You're like, how could, I was just walking five minutes ago. How could you tell me I'm not going to walk? There's no way I'll get everything back. Just got to work hard. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's the attitude. It's that's, that's that human spirit that I like to talk about. That'll, that'll carry you to places that you never think you can go on your own. But um, and now, now at this point, you do your surgery. How how important for you? Because I, I know that I could have never done what I did were it not for an amazing family and friends. How important were they to your recovery? Your family and friends. Oh my goodness! Very, very important. Yes. So I mean, I just and even. Oh, there's so much to the recovery, so much to it. But I remember my physiatrist telling me, it doesn't matter how hard you work, what's going to come back is going to come back. And what's not is not. And I didn't believe him. So I'm like, life doesn't work that way. The harder you work, 
the more, the greater the results. And I never believed him, but he's really right. <laughs> he's really right. Right. Yeah. They, they, some of them really know what they're talking about when they, when they tell you all of that stuff. And, you know, obviously we know how this affected you physically because it took away your ability to walk and, and so many other things that it does once you bang up your spinal cord. How did, how did Janine, you deal with this mentally? Because oftentimes that is the harder nut to crack than it is the physical part. Well, yeah, that's a very good question. First of all, my friends were, I had so much support. My neighbors were home making a list of, I have a very tight-knit neighborhood. There were like 63 houses tucked behind Route 18. I knew everybody in every house. Mm. And I used to organize block parties. And they, when I got hurt, the neighbors all rallied around my family. And every single night, a beautiful meal would arrive at my family's doorstep. Mm. So I had total peace of mind that my family was well cared for in my absence. And my mother-in-law had just retired. She was a teacher. That was the my accident year was her first year of retirement. So she was able to walk across the street to my house and get the kids on the bus every day. Oh, wow. So one of the big, big um, eases of conscious was that I knew that my family was well taken care of and that made me able to focus entirely on me and getting strong enough to come home. Yeah. Well, that's, and that's all a reflection on you, Janine, the person that you are and that you were, that so many, so many folks came out of the woodwork to want to help your cause and your family. And, and oh, what a blessing that was. Yeah. For oh, you my to concentrate on, on what was happening with you. Now, tell us about um, Kessler Institute when you're there as an inpatient. What do you remember about getting there and, and how they sort of, help put Humpty Dumpty like you and me back together again. Oh my goodness gracious. Okay. So I spent the first three and a half weeks in ICU at Robert Wood trying to trying to stabilize my blood pressure and I got pneumonia and I couldn't wait to get to Kessler because to me I wanted to be proactive in my recovery. I didn't just want to lay on my back in an ICU room. So um, I could not wait to get to Kessler. But I had a fever for the last seven days that I was waiting to go. I remember that my, my husband was speaking to Dr. Kirschbloom every single day trying to get accepted in there. And he accepted me and my insurance. But a, a rehab hospital wants you healthy when you come in. They won't accept you if you have pneumonia or a fever. They want you well enough so that you can start doing exercises. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Remember, I had a UTI when I was in the hospital and they wouldn't take me until I was over that because you, as you say, a fever, right? Uh, they won't take you. And so, uh, so therapy starts and I didn't even know there was such thing as OT. I didn't know what the heck that was. I mean, everybody hears of PT. They just want to know, hey, is so-and-so ever going to walk again? Are they going to walk again? They don't They don't ever really think, hey, are you, is the person going to be able to feed themselves or put on some clothes? And, 
you know, right. uh, brush their hair. I mean, all that kind of stuff. So this is all now new to you, right? Right. They want, uh, so I asked for, I was used to working out. I was in great shape. Um, so I asked for an extra hour of exercise and they granted it to me. So I had 90 minutes of OT, 90 minutes of PT, and then another 90 minutes of me being on the weight circuit, lifting all the weights mm-hmm. and me being independent. So, so a, an aide would look at me and move me to the next machine. But I did all the exercises for an extra hour. That's awesome. You really tackled it. Yeah, I tried. So I wasn't ready to come home yet because the thought overwhelmed me, but I wanted to get stronger as soon as possible, which I did. So I was there four months to the day. And the first week, Kessler wanted to know, what are your goals? Well, my goal, my two goals, my two main goals was I wanted to be able to blow dry my hair again, (laughs) wash it independently, blow dry my hair, and to cook again. And they laughed. They were trying to to talk me out of cooking. They said, this is your great excuse for the rest of your life. You never have to cook again. I'm like, when you have three children and you're not a millionaire, cooking is not an option. (laughs) And and driving isn't an option either. I want to drive. So I had goals and, and and this is key. One of the goals that I set early was I'm going to minimum for the, for the love and good of my family. I am going to minimize my injury every day of my life. So that meant to me, I wanted to be the most independent so that my family did not, they would have to do the least for me. Yeah. And that has maintained the truth to this day. Yes, it has. Yes, it has. How yeah. about now, now that you are discharged and you're out of Kessler uh, as an inpatient, what what is the plan now? You had been a teacher. When did the idea of maybe working at Kessler um, as an advocate for the spinal cord injured community, when does that sort of come across your radar? That doesn't come across my radar to years and years later when I realized, oh my goodness, I have three kids in college next two years. What am I going to do? So I realized that I needed money and I needed it fast. So I flipped a house and got a job at Kessler. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I did. But um, I, tr- I wanted to go back to teaching, but I couldn't get my bowel program under control. But when I was at Kessler, and the same is true now, um, the no, sorry, when I was at Robert Wood, every time there was a Spanish-speaking patient, they had to hope that the uh, respiratory therapist, Carmen, was in that day because nobody else spoke Spanish. So I talked to all my nurses, and the doctors and the aides. And I said, I will teach you Spanish, medical Spanish. So for the first three years of my injury, all those nurses and and laymen who wanted to learn Spanish from Robert Wood, yeah. they came over from 8 to 9.30, three days a week at night because oh. their shift ended at 7.30. So, would, so my class started at 8 and ended at 9.30. And I taught them medical Spanish 
for the next three years. Oh, gosh, that's awesome. Yeah, I loved teaching. That is terrific. So you taught the, the nurses and oh, my gosh, that's that's great. And to this day, we're still friends. And two of my what, my better friends, um, they've been to the Caribbean with me as my guests. And um, we just get along great. We're still we're still good friends. Oh, my gosh. So now let's fast forward. Tell us about when you started um, working at Kessler. What were um, what were you doing and uh, what were some of your chores when you were there? OK, I, I just I was hired in 2016 to do one thing, and that was to represent Think First. And um, so I had to Think First is an injury prevention program. And what was so interesting about it was that the people, it was an injury prevention program that Kessler took to all schools, uh, elementary schools, intermediate, middle schools, and uh, high schools. And we brought with us voices for injury prevention. And those voices for injury prevention were people like me who were injured. But I wasn't a good candidate because I didn't do anything avoidable to prevent my injury. In other words, I didn't drink and drive. I didn't text and drive. I was wearing my seatbelt. I didn't dive into a shallow pool. Yeah. I didn't do anything unadvisable. Right. To contribute to it. Yeah. Right. But my VIPs, my voices for injury prevention that go, that speak at different schools, they're a different story. So I worked on training them because that would be where my education background would come in to train them to captivate the audience of high school students and middle students. And I have experience in that field. Sure. Elementary students are pretty uh, enthusiastic all on their own. They don't need any magic. Mm -hmm. They're usually a good audience. But I had to make my speakers as good as they can be and then um, train them for the program. And then I would book schools. And I had a lot of um, um, connections with different schools. So I was able to take the existing program and expand it into never before territory and schools that they've never that never tapped into this program. Yes. So so think first in in layman's terms is it sort of like remember I can remember when I was a kid they used to have a show on TV called Scared Straight where it was inmates yes. from prison that were trying to teach younger folks hey you know you better you better stop Shape what up. you're doing. Yeah. Or you're going to wind up like us. So, you know, exactly. almost to try and scare kids because listen, when we're all young, we think we're invincible. Um, right. As if to say, if you do X, Y, and Z, you could wind up in this chair and is, this is right. not uh, the desired way to go. Right. And the only reason why you're invincible and you're pretty chronically invincible until you are, brain forms all the way, which doesn't happen until you're 26. So right now you're going to think that if this happened to you, you'd be able to get up and walk. If this or this would never happen to you. Uh, so I, I'm going to, I am an expert texter while driving. Yeah. I don't put anybody in harm's way. 
no, that is not the truth. And even though you don't believe it's the truth, just take my word for it because you're not going to think otherwise until you are yeah, older. Absolutely. So, yes, take our word for it. You are not invincible. If it could happen to us, it could very well happen to you. Mm -hmm. And we horrify them because people think that the only serious consequence you have of being paralyzed is that you can't walk. No, yeah. your whole entire system is paralyzed. Yeah. And let me tell you what that means as their jaws drop to the floor. Yeah. Hopefully it works. You know, I, I know that when I was in high school, we had uh, a program like that and, they had out on the front lawn of the school, they had a car that was absolutely demolished. And yeah. they brought us out there and showed, the. you know, it was this type of an accident that, you know, this person was in the wheelchair. And I just remember walking away like, whoa, that had totally blown my mind. <clears throat> and, right. And um, it worked. It worked for me because I, thank goodness we didn't have phones back then because who knows, as you say, everybody wants to text and drive. And sometimes I find myself now you know, when I get a text in and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm taking my eyes off the road. And it's so dangerous. Right. It's, it's just something right. that, uh, the program, I'm so happy that, that you, um, chair it and that you set up all of our great VIPs that go out. I happen to know a bunch of them and they do a terrific job. How about now, other than think first, when did, um, you become a peer counselor and, and what is it that you try to convey to a newly injured person during your sessions? Okay, that's a great question, John. Um, I, they didn't have the program the way it's set up now. It used to be a lot more laid back where when I visited Castle, I would just go up on the floor and just try and talk to people, but it got stricter. So they asked me to do it, but for the longest time, I wasn't utilized because there aren't many women that get injured. They, they want same gender um, peer counselors, as you know. Yes. So I was underutilized for a long time until we, we intensified the program. So now we have more people. So they put me in charge of, well, that area of being um, a peer counselor to women. And they also expanded my uh, job territory as well. Mm -hmm. um, they're also utilizing my educational background. So so um, patients have to take five classes before they are discharged. And I teach two of those five classes. So I feel like my teaching talents are being used. Yes. And I love teaching. Yes. And tell us the the exciting classes that you teach. Yeah, well, yeah, uh, yeah. they're I'm beneficial for the folks. Yeah, but I mean, when, you, when yeah. you hear about it, it's like, oh my gosh, that's the subject I know you matter. cringe. Yeah. You cringe because uh, this program that we do, this educational program is called Lunch and Learn. Um, and I am teaching them about how they can manage their bowels while they're eating lunch. <laughs> and I always love it when they sit in front of me and they're, they're, tackling their dessert, which is very often chocolate pudding with, yeah. with cream on top. Gosh. Oh, no. It's yeah. so true. I happen to be in the room, everyone, when, when Janine gives the gives her speech. 
and as beneficial as it is for the for the people, I I sit there and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what has my life <laughs> turned into that I'm listening to this subject matter? But it's yeah. it's really life changing for these people. They they need to know these things, even though they, oh, don't they probably do. don't want to. They need to know it. And Janine is is so great at doing it with humor. So I do, and with yeah. you know life lessons and and uh, but yeah, it's it's certainly yeah. the furthest thing from teaching high school Spanish. Oh my goodness, are you kidding me? Yeah, and um, so so I teach bowel management and bladder management mm. while they're eating, yeah. but. That bladder management is a lot more pleasant. Yeah, uh, than the doubt. bladder. Yeah, but oh, yeah, yeah. But we're we're thankful to have you because you're so good at it. You're you're living it, and and you have the experience, so that these people can know that it's just. It's not like, you know, it's one thing to hear it from able-bodied people and it's, it's great to get the information from them, but they don't, I mean, they know from the books and they know from the classes they've been, that they've been in, but they don't know it from walking the walk like, like you and I have. Right. And that's why it's, it means right. a little bit more coming from you. And so. That's um, what they say. And I know Janine yeah. that you wear many hats. You're a daughter, a wife, a mother, a teacher and a counselor, but you've added a new one to the mix now. And that's author. What is the name of the book that you are working on or that you're just about finished with? And what will someone who reads it learn about not only Janine oh Valenti, but the world around us? Wow. Another great question. Well, the name of the book is I'm st my wheelchairs have always stood me up. So I am standing in a wheelchair on the front cover in front of my house and the, um, the title is Rise to the Occasion uh, uh, from Tragedy to Triumph, a Christian Perspective. So I was motivated to write this book just because I, because I, I don't want my story to die when I do. I would like my future family members to know who their great, great, great aunt was or their great, great, great grandmother was. And so I don't want my story to be lost. But another thing that motivated me was that I, my faith was strong before my injury and it got so much stronger after my injury because I noticed so many miracles in my life. So I was also able to, by not working, by being a house wife was that I got to take a, a nine year Bible study. I didn't know it was going to be nine years. Mm -hmm. I only had intention of taking it one year at a time, but I ended up staying for nine years. And I got so much from that, that my story is parallel with what God wants you to know about your faith if you're a Christian. Mm -hmm. What does God want you to know? Where can I find it in the Bible? And by the time you finish reading it, you're going to know my story and God's plan for you and uh, God's hope for you. So I'm hoping that your faith increases and your um, and that you learn and that my family in the future knows who I am and always was. So that's my hope. That's amazing. And and is the book done? Are you finished with it? And um, um, if so, when and where can uh, my audience 
get their hands on a copy? Well, that's another good question. I'm working with a publisher. So the publisher is still giving me uh, tips, suggestions, and I'm still, it's still a work in progress. But I feel like it's mostly done. And I have to just now get pictures in there um, and just work with their team. Mm -hmm. But I would say within the next six months, it would be out. I have one last question for you on the book and then one that we'll finish up with. The last question about the book is who is going to play you in the movie version? Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Janine. Oh, you must have I thought will... of that by now. No, not at all. But I will cross that bridge when we come to it. Okay. Okay. And the last one that I always end my podcasts with, um, and I get a, a different answer from pretty much everyone that comes on with me, is if I could snap my fingers right now, Janine, and you would be completely able-bodied once again, what is the first thing that you would do? Wow. I am, I am tossed between dancing and starting an aerobics class right away to get rid of this quad pot I've accumulated. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, I miss working out more than walking. Yeah. yeah. I wish I could just feel as good as I did yeah. uh, when I was at, you know, cause you yeah. never, yeah, you never, cause your blood pressure is so low. But I often think about that. I would love to do an aerobics class, you know? Mm. So anyway, so that's it. But I've danced at weddings already. I've stood up in my chair and just slow danced or danced in a group. And yeah, so I've already danced. So I think my first response would be I would do a workout. You'd get your 80s leg warmers on and, and get out there with Jane yeah. Fonda again? Yeah, yeah, I would. Oh gosh, that's a great answer. I always, my answer is always that I would get my earbuds in and go out for a nice run and and just let the sweat roll down my face. Yeah, it's you know we miss oh, our great. bodies working the way they used yes. to, right? Yeah, there's no wrong answer for that question. No, either. there really isn't. I've I've heard a million of them from dancing with their wives to Eric Legrand said he'd run out the front door butt naked up and down the street. And, oh my uh, God! Yeah, that was a good one. And another friend told me, John, this is going to sound crass, but I would stand up in front of the toilet and just pee like I used to pee, and, uh, <laughs> and get in the shower and take my own shower and all of that kind of stuff. So yeah, you know, as as they say, no two injuries are the same. No two answers to that question will ever be the same. Right. That's Absolutely. a good point. Well, Janine, I, I know it's taken a while for this to come together, but I am so happy that not only I get a chance to to work with you on a on a weekly basis and share an office, but to uh to, you know, to soak in some of of what you are all about because you are positivity um personified. And I want to thank you for joining me on the podcast and and also for becoming a good friend. Oh, thank you, John. I feel the same about you, too. And that will do it for this episode of the Quadcast. Thanks again to the amazing Janine Valenti for joining me. If you like what you've heard on today's show, please log on to my website, which is www.quadcast.org. There you will find many more inspirational and uplifting editions. I'd appreciate it if you could tell a friend or two Let's take this venture to a whole new level. Thanks, as always, to Chris Parapesco 
at Harbor Picture Company for mixing the show. And until we meet again, I am John McAlevey, and I thank you for your time. I don't care.